Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It's Wheeler Dealer Radio. I'm your host, Greg, and we are here to discuss a cup final. It should be worth noting that Tottenham has never scored in a cup final since Wheeler Dealer Radio has existed. I'm not saying it's our fault, but it probably is. Sharing the blame with me, we have coming to us from Atlanta, Ben Daniels. Ben, how are you doing on this post-cup final uh, eve, night, whatever? Uh, I'm fine. I mean, you know, bummed, but happier than I would have been watching Jose Mourinho lose the cup final. Just, or just, I would have just been furious about everything. Just living that lowered expectations lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, we have coming to us live from the slopes of Miami, it is Brian Ashlock. Brian, how are you doing after our latest futile endeavor into trophy uh, winning? Uh, I'm fucking amazing. Uh, wow. Ryan Mason. He's coming right off that black diamond. In his, you know, second match as Tottenham Hotspur manager. And I think that that has vindicated me and my entire brand. Uh, so I'm great. Because <laughs> being right on the internet is more important than actual joy. I mean, being right on the internet is his own kind of joy, really. It's uh, honestly, it's the only kind of joy anymore. Really, the only kind of joy in Miami. The only legal kind of joy. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So Tottenham Hotspur, as you are well aware, if you're listening to this, lost one nil to Manchester City in the League Cup final. It was. Uh, I, I'm honestly, I think the reaction of the match has been a little more interesting than the match itself, which I think largely, at least as far as I was concerned, largely went as expected. Tottenham were no great shakes, but some people are very mad online about this. Ben, you're usually very mad online. What are, are you a little surprised by this? Because I thought, you know, like getting rid of Jose was great, but I felt like a game like this was kind of the price you had to pay for that. I mean, look, a lot of people were, you know, first of all, we're still unhappy to see Jose Mourinho go. You know, there are definitely people who are still out there who think we hired him to win a cup, we fired him before we could let him win a cup and Ryan Mason didn't win a cup, therefore vindicating their opinion that Jose Mourinho somehow would have. Um, so there's that group of people. And then there's a group of people who watched the game and saw how bad we were and some of the dumb things that Ryan Mason did. And were I think, you know, rightly mad about some of those decisions and, and some of the aspects of the way we played. Um, I can certainly understand being mad, seeing Spurs yet again, fail to score, uh, in a cup final and go out, you know, fairly meekly. But yeah, for me, it's just what are you, what are you expecting, man? It's Ryan Mason, a 29 year old with basically zero managerial experience, managing a cup final in his second game against the best team in the world. Like, I'm just not going to be overly mad about anything that happens. I'd like it to have gone better, but like, why I mean, be mad? If there was any frustration for me, it's that. I mean, I think through a little bit of how we set up, but mostly through dumb luck, 
we were still in this game at like 80 minutes when they scored. And at that point, I was just kind of hoping for something stupid to happen where we could steal it. But at no point did it ever feel like this was going to be a deserved win by Tottenham Hotspur. And I don't think, you know, we hired Ryan Mason. It was like, what did you expect? Like you said, it's like it's the best manager of the modern era versus a guy who's 29 in his second game as a manager in a, in a week. Like, I don't know what anyone was expecting out of this match. I think there's things to be, like, frustrated about. I think the subs were awful. I think starting Harry Winks over Ndombele is borderline criminal. I think there were a lot of problems with it, but again, like it's it's his second match. He's twenty nine. What are you expecting? Well, I think the thing that people were expecting was, uh, you know, kind of what I derided him for on the last show was passion and energy and uh, you know playing for the shirt and all this. And it, while I absolutely agree with you guys that certainly from a tactical perspective. Um, this was a match where we were always going to be outclassed. Um, it also felt like we were out-efforted. Um, and, and I don't mean that just in a in a pundity way to be kind of like, you know, derivative about the match or anything. But the energy for us was, I thought, very low. And I thought that the way we reacted to pressure... Um, Throughout much of the match was kind of the opposite of the the bravery that Ryan Mason was talking about, and and we weren't playing you know the Tottenham way of football that he talked about in his opening pre- remarks and his opening press conference. And I I just I think that I would have been a little happier if we had tried to like swashbuckle with City and got done three nil. Um, I, I think that would have been more enjoyable than putting up 0.004 XG and having, you know, one attack that looked really threatening. I, I would have liked that better. I think. I mean, I guess I think is. Go ahead, Ben. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, I don't, I don't think we didn't try to go out there and play with them. Like, we tried to pass the ball out of the back. We just looked like a team completely incapable of doing that so we just hoofed it long lost every header and then it would just come right back at us like i don't know what kind of impetus on the front foot we could have had when we couldn't get the ball off of man city um we weren't interested in pressing which that's really the thing that i would have liked to have seen is like ryan mason just telling the guys okay remember what pressing was when pochino told us to do that just just do that even a little bit and that was, like, I think the big thing that I was, like, really disappointed not to see any of. Um, but, like, I think we tried to play. We were just very bad at yeah, it. Yeah, I, well, and I, think- I was actually, like, I mean, I don't think we were good. And I think that, you know, the .04 XG or whatever, you know, because it's basically the one Lo Celso chance was our only real good chance of the match. Or our only chance of the match, period. But... I still thought this was an improvement over some of the performances we've seen under Mourinho. And I know we beat City under Mourinho. Like, you know, I understand that. But I just thought, like, we didn't fold, like, a cheap, you know, deck of cards. Like, it was... Again, like, I understand that we were incredibly fortunate to still, like... For it still to be nil-nil when City scored... But, I don't know, it just didn't seem as pathetic a performance as we were getting at the end of the Mourinho era. And I'm I'm fully aware 
that my biases might be entirely coloring that, and I'm just reading shit into this match that wasn't there. Because I and I fully understand if this has been Mourinho managing this match, and he'd done what he did with Winks and Ndombele, I would be you know burning shirts on the top of my building and screaming from the rooftop. I would be very angry about this in a way that I'm just not under Ryan Mason. And part of that's because I don't have very high expectations for Ryan Mason. And part of that's because Ryan Mason's not going to be our manager next year. You know, even if he won this game, that's definitely not going to happen. So, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, Maybe it's just my own lowered expectations. It's just nothing in this match really bothered me that much. I mean, like, in terms of, like, level of effort and passion, like, Hugo made a couple incredible diving saves. Like, guys were throwing their bodies in front of the ball and blocking shots. Even Dyer, who we have maligned a lot on this podcast. I thought Dyer had a halfway decent game. I mean, yeah, I think there was some... We could have been better. But, like, again, Aurier was getting his ass kicked by, by Sterling. But he was sticking with him, tracking him back. Didn't give away any dumb penalties until he gave away the free kick that led to the goal. You know, like guys were were trying, and I think I don't know. I don't. I don't fault them for that. We just again, we just didn't have a real plan or a real good plan, well, ben, and we didn't have the players out there to execute whatever plan we did have. Ben, I mean, you said something. I just, I, you said something during the game <laughs> that I think was well taken. Is like this is the difference between a manager with a coherent plan and a team that understands it and team that has had a manager for a week after a season of shit. I think Brian really wants to say something. Yeah, he looks like <laughs> No, it. I just I just wanted to say that I think we played like shit. Um, uh, no, I, I don't know. I, um, we definitely did. No, so, um, to, to Greg's point, like, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, some of the analysis that has come out, uh, I think everybody's retweeted or seen the Jamie Carragher clip where he talks about, you know, what our plan was for seven minutes. And and I think based on his analysis that, yeah, we had a plan that was basically to clog up the middle and force City down the flanks. And, and yes, it did absolutely work for most of the match. Um but there was there didn't appear to be a plan to address what to do when we got on the ball. Like it, it seemed very Jose Mourinho in that regard, where Ryan Mason was like, "Ah, here's what we got to do to cl- to to stop City." And in fairness to him, you know, they didn't get an open play goal, um, so pretty good job there. Uh, but there was just nothing done to address, you know what we did on the counterattack. Like he, you know, it wasn't even like the air raid offense that we played um, in latter era Pochettino. It wasn't, you know, long balls with Kane dropping deep to feed Sun over the top. There just, it wasn't any of that. It was attempt to break the press, kind of do, then pass backwards, then make a turnover. And, and, and I mean, all of the attacking players on the field had poor games. Um, Lacelso probably was fine, but then got yanked before he, like, as he was really kind of starting to get into it. Um, Hoiberg wasn't great. I think he's just exhausted. Winks was Harry Winks. Uh, you know, I mean, you hit on Dyer Hugo and and Alderweireld. I think they were probably the three standout players for us, but nobody else really looked good in, in for long stretches. I think you really hit the thing, Brian, that frustrated me the most is that having miraculously got to halftime 
at nil-nil. We came out in the second half looking much brighter, and for about 20 minutes, we saw Lo Celso really growing into the game. We saw Lucas going on some really bursting runs up through midfield. You know, we saw us finally look like we were capable of, like, pinning City back a little bit, and, like, while we weren't creating great opportunities, we were moving the ball a little bit. We looked like we were finally playing with some some agency. And then Ryan Mason yanked Los Celso and Lucas, who, again, were the brightest parts of that period of attack, and brought on Suzuko and Gareth Bale, who is terrible and can't run, and it totally squandered you know whatever little glimmer of uh, of attacking structure we had managed to like claw out of that game. And that is really what drove me the most nuts. Well, we had no right to be in the game at that point, and we somehow were. As sort of profligate as Lo Celso was in the first half, I thought he really, like you said, especially towards the end of the first half, but really in the second half, he really started finding some opportunities to break City's press. He created our best chance of the match, drawing what I thought was actually an underrated save out of Zach Steffen in goal. I mean, that, that sort of knuckleball in front, in front of City's goal that was a really nice shot, but... You know, it's just, uh, there isn't the coherent plan. Even putting on Bale that late in the match, like, in theory, it makes sense. But, like, pulling Lucas, who actually was having a pretty good match, probably should have drawn two yellow cards out of Laporte, uh, you know. It just, he put them, he took them off, and he just put on players. We had just no ability to progress the ball after that. And that's when City really started turning the screws on us. When there was just no, th- we just offered no threat at all. I, mean, I don't want to be too harsh on Mason because I know Brian will do that for me, but it was just not, you know, it, it, it was the kind of performance you expect from a manager in his second game when he's 29. It was like there was a lot of na- naivete. What, I, what, what frustrates me about Mason is, and I understand there's like a lot that, you know, we don't necessarily know and what he's trying to do, but. You know, I think anyone could look at, like, okay, you're taking off Lo Celso and Lucas. Like, who's going to move the ball up? Like, what, what's your plan for doing that? Because it's under the best of circumstances. Harry Winks is going to do that, Greg. But Harry, Harry Winks, that's, like, not his game. And that's not what he's done all game. And I no, can't... no, that's what... Harry Winks is a passing midfielder. Ryan I don't know Mason, how you don't understand this. Ryan Mason has to know more about football than I do. He absolutely has to. And it's, I understand if, like... Does he, though? Have you seen him play? Yeah, but... Yeah, if Ryan Mason's playing career is any indication, Ryan Mason has no idea what a <laughs> midfielder is supposed to do. But it's like, he, you watch what Lo Celso is doing, and it's like, you put on Ndombele at that point. That would have been fine. Like, it would have been completely understandable. You put you put on Deli Alley, who can move the ball forward. These are all, like, legitimate moves. But you put on Sissoko, who you know isn't... Like, at best, he's there as sort of a holding option. You know, and, and Bale, who I, I understand there's some attacking impetus for Bale, but if you've removed any sort of link between defense and attack, it, you know, what do you expect Bale to do? I mean, you know, he's not the Gareth Bale who's going to pick it up in, the, in, in his own half and, like, beat everyone on the dribble down the field anymore. I'm interested to see, does Ben have any thoughts about how Musa Soko has now cost us two cup finals? I do. <laughs> I'm very mad about that. I but, he's our, but he's our good. mascot. He's so cute and adorable. It's like, it's just, it's maddening. Like, his only contribution to the match was losing his marker for the goal. Like, that's it. Well, and he, what is his big, what what makes Sissoko, why do managers apparently keep sticking with Sissoko, is his physicality 
and you know the one thing, even the, you know he's not he's not he doesn't have to run up and down the field. He just has to be like a big strong dude who gets in Laporte's way and stop him from getting a clean header on the ball. He can't even do that. Yeah, also, like, sure. why why is he on Laporte? And, and, and maybe this is I wasn't I wasn't paying enough attention to where like Dyer and Alderweireld are, and maybe they're zonally marking an area. But like to me, I don't I don't know. Your center back should probably be marking the two best, bigger aerial threats. Like, and then I guess Kane usually does the zonal marking. But I it just doesn't make sense to me why Sissoko is the guy man marking their tall physical center defender right who's very good on set pieces yeah not not that look eric dyer might have messed it up too or toby could have messed it up also like i don't know but like uh, that just doesn't seem like the right man marking decision there yeah. um i i guess we, you, greg you started talking about the substitutions and I, I think that's definitely a problem that we all we both all of us discussed after the first game that, you know, if Mourinho had made those subs, we would all be very angry. And, you know, it worked out in the first game. That's fine. Um, and the second match was kind of more of the same. And, and uh, you know, it goes back to what Ben was saying is, you know, about knowing what a midfielder does and understanding how the midfield worked in this system. And, I guess I understand to an extent if you don't think that Deli Alley or Tongi and Dombele can come into the midfield and execute the defensive plan you have set up. But once you went 1-0 down at the very least, and Dombele made sense to come on and just let him try stuff. I mean, at that point, that's when Deli Alley comes on. But, you know, it, Winks is still out there at 1-0 down. And that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and, you know, the Sissoko one didn't make sense at all, ever, and, and, at any scoreline. But, you know, the, the way he's choosing to use these subs, when he has five subs available to him, he could, he could have made... This isn't like he was limited. He could use most of his bench. And he just, like, he didn't use the parts that he needed to. He throws on Deli and Bale, and I, I don't know. He doesn't give them any sort of time to impose themselves on the game. It's not like you put them on like the seventieth minute, where they're like, you know, okay, get you know, get your feet wet, get get sort of acquainted with it. He just you know puts them on late. Okay, maybe you score a goal. It is the kind of thing Mourinho would do. I mean, it's to go down one nil without using all of your subs, especially when you have a guy of the caliber of Tanguy and Dombele on the bench, is just. Is negligent. I'm like, again, why is Bergwijn coming on in like the 91st minute? That's like a, a time-wasting sub when we're chasing well, Especially like, like... He has zero time to do anything. Like, as soon as we go a goal down, like, you can't play for extra time anymore. Like, that's when you make your subs. Like, you have no other choice. It's not like we're doing so well that you want to disrupt our rhythm. It's like, make your fucking subs, man. Yeah, and if you have a guy like LaCelso who's like, okay, you're, you're hurt, you can't go anymore, we don't want to, like, break you again... You know, like, that's the time to, like, maybe put Bergvine on, like, start running at dudes, like, you know, at least, like, get some pace in the team. You know, City's looking a little leggy. Maybe maybe if we run at them hard, like, they can't handle it. Like, I don't know. It just felt like, it felt very rote. It didn't feel like we were taking chances. And on some level, I understand that against City, but we're also not going to get anything against City unless we, like, take a few risks. And, 
Yeah, again, he's a rookie manager. It's not maybe fair to expect him to do some of these things, but it just it was disappointing to watch because one way or another, whether we deserved it or not, you know, like come the 80th minute, we were st- we could have stolen this game, and it would have been nice for once for Spurs to fart their way into a trophy the way Arsenal keeps managing to do year after year. Yeah. Like I, I am inclined, like you said, to to be a little bit forgiving to Ryan Mason. <laughs> But are you like, yeah, I mean, look, I, I can't expect him to have a fully formed plan B of like, OK, now when we go a goal down, this is what we're going to do. And uh, like, like he's not at that level of management where I even expected him to have a plan A that worked as well as it did. But like plan B, if you've ever played FIFA or football manager, and I know this is very reductive, it's pretty easy to just, once you go a goal down, to get on all the attacking players and be like, yeah, do that, go forward. Like Ben said, like, you should have had three... Once they scored that goal, you should have had three guys up at the halfway line, ready to go on. Well, especially and, that late in the match. It's not like you have to think about, well, we got 50 minutes to play after this. Like, Yeah, yeah, you don't have to, like, all you should be doing is like, all right, what? how do I change the shape slightly to make sure that this works? It's like, okay, we're, we're a diamond now, guys. I don't know, you figure it out. Um... It, and it just wasn't that. And, I mean, you know, it sucked that we didn't have Vinicius on the bench to have another striker. Not that Vinicius would have scored, but he had legs that worked, which is an improvement over our other striker. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. It's it's It was... I want to give Mason credit for getting a plan that got us to the point that it got us to, even with poor performances like if we had seen some actual good performances from i don't know any of the attackers or the midfielders who knows where we'd be at well but, i think i, think, I mean look, i was brian no i think brian hit the nail on the head there with something which is if any plan of spurs whether it was sound or lucky required some of our attackers to have very good days and i think son in particular, might have had his worst day in a Spurs shirt. I mean, he was awful. And Lo Celso was really bad for long periods. Of, I mean, again, I think Lo Celso was probably our best player over the course of the match, but I think it certainly created the most chances. But he was dire for long periods of the match. I mean, but Son in particular stands out to me. It was just not good. And I think probably any version of us winning this match, like Kane or Son, just needs to have an excellent match. Yeah, someone's was very frustrating because he looked like afraid to take yeah. Kyle Walker. It's like I credit him because he was the only guy who was actually a viable outfall. Like he was the only person we could get the ball to to actually maintain possession in the final third, which is something because we didn't have any other way to get the ball up there. But once he got there, he was too afraid to to take on Walker. Like he did not dribble at a man the entire match. He'd sit there, he'd check back. And because the rest of the team was dog shit, they would just fucking pass it back to Hugo. And it was just like, you know, we had to catch them with their pants down. Like, that was like the only way we were possibly capable of scoring a goal the way we were playing. And any time an opportunity like that presented itself, we got scared. And we didn't didn't take that opportunity. And I don't know if that's like residual Jose Mourinho, where like everybody is so afraid of making a mistake and giving the ball away that everybody played like very within themselves. But... It was bad. I mean, I think think you're not wrong. Like, you know, I don't run for a year, even though I've done it before. You know, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'll have some of that muscle memory, but it's still going to feel rusty and, 
you know, I won't be as good as I was when I was doing it all the time. It's it's natural that these guys are hesitant actually attacking on the ball. But even then, I mean, the, the thing that sticks out for me, the two plays that stick out for me, the two real missed opportunities, when Hoybjerg, like, didn't know what to do when he got let cut loose and yelled at Regulon for not being on the ball when it's like, I don't know, he should have done something better with it. And then Son, like, that weak-ass pass across the middle that... Sh- that I feel like any other week he would have hit hard enough to hit one of his teammates, but he just sort of hit this very limp pass that, you know, this hospital ball that just went to a city defender who didn't even have to do anything really all that hard to intercept it. It was just, you know, it was, we didn't have a great plan of attack. City was on their game and our attackers did not have anything approaching the kind of game they needed to have to, for us to steal this one. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was pretty sanguine about it during the game because, again, whatever, Ryan Mason, it's the second match, et cetera. But, like, it was a terrible performance. It like, was. Let's, let's not be clear. Like, it was. We, we got to the 80th minute without a goal being scored, but, like, they were destroying us for most of that game. Like, we got our asses kicked. And I think that needs to be made very, very clear that this was not, like, a, a stout defensive performance. We got very, very lucky that we were even in that game as long as we were. I still think it was better than what we would have seen under Mourinho, which is more of an indictment of Jose Mourinho than an endorsement of Ryan Mason. And, you know, the real benefit of hiring Mason isn't the performance we had in the match, although, again, I think he got more out of that team than Mourinho would have. But, or at least Mourinho would have at the point at which he was with that team. But, you know, the the reason, like, the benefit of having Ryan Mason is he's not advancing weird agendas after the game. We're not all, like, we're mad enough about the match. We're not spitting mad about some dumb shit he said after the game, you know. He comports himself well. He's not going, he's not starting vendettas with players. For the last six weeks of this year, or whatever the fuck we have left in the season, that's what we're getting out of Ryan Mason. Hopefully, we somehow back our way into Champions League football. But what we get is, like, a good vibes manager who's just not making us feel shittier about the team than we already do. I mean, he did dodge a question about why he didn't play in Dombele, which I would have liked for him to Yeah, answer. but he also he, didn't even say... Even if he gave a bland manager answer. But like, he also didn't say oh, Dombele's well. a fat piece of shit, and maybe if he took this game seriously, I would play him. But, you know, now his family can just be ashamed of him. Like you know, I that, mean, he is interim manager. If I was interim manager, I'd be taking that opportunity to grind as many axes as I could. Well, you're not the saint that is Ryan Mason, so... It's true. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think the reason Ryan Mason exists is the palpable atmosphere that I saw on Twitter, that I saw people's videos, like, from bars in London, from at the match, of people being just genuinely excited about this team. And that, to me, whatever happened in the performance, like, that was worth a lot to me. To have people clearly feeling good about this club again, about this team again, and about what it means to be a Spurs supporter again. And I, I just, I, like, again, it would have been nice to couple that with a victory, but I'm, I'm okay being sad with Ryan Mason, the dugout in a, in an atmosphere of what felt like some sense of togetherness and some sorts of like pride and community around this team that I really have not felt in a long time. And you know, I don't think Jose would have won. And yes, I obviously would have been happier if Jose had won a trophy than watching whatever we did on Sunday instead. But I think Jose would have lost anyway. And the way I felt about losing under Ryan Mason was sad because I believed. 
not angry because it was inevitable. And like that that's how we hired Ryan Mason. Mason offers two things to Spurs fans, like you said, that sense of community and togetherness that he can provide, which I think is a real credit to him. And honestly, I've been impressed with the way he's handled the press. Um, the other thing he offers is the certainty that he will not be here next year as our manager. And, you know, like, we will definitely hire someone else. And it is, he is not, like, it's not like Tim Sherwood when he first came in where it's like, maybe he'll be here next year. No, we understand Ryan Mason is either going to be an assistant to whoever we bring in or back working with our youth academy. But, yeah, you know, there's some value to that. Like, I know this is going to sound awful, but, like, considering the fucking season we have, that we're not all, like, at least amongst the Spurs fans I sort of talk to and travel travel among, you know, that we don't have pitchforks and torches out, because there are certainly Spurs fans who do, because that was a shitty game. You know, I think that's a credit to Mason, and that's the reason he's here. But certainly in the longer term, we need more than that. And, you know... I think in some ways he's lucky that he was playing City because if we'd gotten pumped like that by, say, Arsenal, it would have been a much uglier scene. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> the, the the other good thing about this... or Well, I guess the other sad thing about it, rather. Is <laughs> <laughs> good, good for me, sad. I don't know. No, the, the other sad thing about this is, like, this was our opportunity, like we discussed, for some of the long-serving Spurs players to actually potentially win a trophy. And, you know, Hugo puts in a a good performance in a cup final and comes away empty-handed again. Uh, You know, Eric Lamella doesn't get a trophy. Harry Kane, still no trophy. Harry Winks, deservedly so, no trophy. Fuck him. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like, the the fact that, you know, some of these players that that we've all appreciated from this particular era of Spurs continue to be trophyless, particularly when, you know, there were times when we were probably the best team in England um, or we were, you know, the one of the t- two best teams in the country uh, where we made a Champions League final, um, you know, things that we never thought we'd see as Spurs fans. Um, and we have nothing to show for it. Meanwhile, Arsenal have like, what, three FA Cups and like, it's bullshit. Just sucks. I mean, it does, but I wouldn't say we have nothing to show for it. Honestly, like, yes, we don't have a, like a trophy. We have trophy paint cabinet. companies making fun of us on Twitter about our empty trophy cabinet, Ben. I, I don't yeah. know. I feel that's, like we have nothing. That's fine. I know that I enjoyed the last half decade under Pochettino more than Arsenal fans enjoyed winning a couple FA Cups as their team like turned to shit. I, I, I feel very confident about that. Um, I think, you know, reaching a Champions League final was an incredible moment. You know, chasing a couple titles, even though we fell short, was something to be very proud of. Like, it's been a great ride being a Spurs fan until very recently. And, you know, I think with Jose gone and Ryan Mason not here for the long haul, um, I believe we can very quickly get back to that. And Arsenal is going to be stuck with Mikel Arteta for another season. So another, hopefully more than that. Uh, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing as we smoothly transition as we usually do on this show is we're looking at the new manager and it's such a tricky proposition because honestly, in a lot of ways, this feels to me like when we hired Pochettino, like we're coming off this manager that we, and I'm being very loose with we here, had high expectations for and it didn't work out just like we did under AVB. 
we're trying to reset after a f- very disappointing season. And I remember just not being super. I mean, ben, I know you wanted to hire him, but I don't know how you felt at the time. But I was not super jazzed about Pochettino. I didn't think it was a bad hire, but it didn't like. You know, I wasn't just like, my mind wasn't firing with the possibilities that would happen under him. And obviously, I don't think any Spurs fan could have anticipated sort of what Pochettino was able to do with Spurs. But it's just sort of, I think we're going to be chasing that dragon for a while. And it's probably going to be pretty hard to catch. And it doesn't have to be that way. The Pochettino years were a very special experience. We don't have to hire the next Mauricio Pochettino. I think we'd like to. But as we look at the new manager, especially now that Julian Nagelsmann is, I think, definitely going to Bayern, so he's not coming to Spurs. So you look at, you know, guys like Ragnick, guys like Graham Potter, guys like uh, Ten Hag out of Ajax. Like, you know, in some ways you're just trying to think of, like, who's going to stabilize in the short term. But I don't know about you, either of you, like, my mind can't help but go to, like, What's the wild possibility? Like, what's the Pochettino-type future where we hire Ten Hag and, you know, all that sort of tactical innovation we saw in the Champions League, you know, comes to Spurs. Or we hire Graham Potter and sort of he realizes all the promise that his biggest supporters say he has at Brighton. It's, it's, it's an interesting situation we're in. Because on the one hand, we just need someone who's not going to make us feel like shit every week. But on the other hand, I think we are going to be chasing this Pochettino dragon for at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, look, we have basically two options here moving forward. It's one, and like they, they can happen simultaneously, but one is to build the kind of system that you see at a club like Dortmund, um, you know, that survives manager to manager, that, you know, they have a very, very well-constructed top-down program that goes from recruitment to academies to scouting to analytics to whatever so that you know as long as you're making broadly smart managerial hires you're going to keep competing um you know and the other half of that is or you find a manager who's going to stick with you for the long haul and you know remake the team in his image the way Pochino did for us the way Wenger did for Arsenal you know and you know, ideally, you'd kind of be building the one while we get the other so that once that manager leaves us or turns to shit like Pochettino did, you're not in a situation where you have to hire Jose Mourinho to bail you out because you have nothing left um, and you need somebody to glue the pieces back together. And, you know, I think a lot of the guys that we're looking at are very used to working in those kinds of structures and presumably would like to have those kind of systems around them. Like Ralph Rangnick, for example, is a guy who built those programs at, at Hoffenheim, at, at Leipzig. He's a guy who's, you know, has millions of managerial disciples throughout world football. Like he strikes me as the kind of hire that is possibly transformative in the overarching sense of what this club can be. Um, You know, you look at a guy like, Brandon Rogers, and you know he's doing a very good job at Leicester, and that's within a specific context of like having a lot of that stuff already built around him. And so, if he were to come to Spurs, we'd be betting a lot on him kind of doing that on his own, which might work and might be fine. But you know, there's a very short-termist thinking when hiring a manager like that, unless you're doing everything else around him. And I, I just. I'm very nervous we're not going to do 
both of those things. I think it, what's interesting to me is, you know, I feel like Scott Parker's name is being thrown around by, I mean, because we're sickos who read ITKs. It's being thrown around by a lot of ITKs. It's being thrown in as sort of an addendum to a lot of articles about him in the legitimate press. And, but generally speaking, the names you're seeing thrown around are, I guess, the kind of names you would want to see Spurs throwing around. Young, progressive, building, like, sort of comfortable, the kind of projects you just talked about, Ben. You know, regardless of what you sort of think about their individual merits, they, they seem to be, honestly, it's kind of weird. Like, you look at us going from Pochettino, or at least when we hired Pochettino, to what we did with Mourinho, and now we're, like, back to kind of what we did with Pochettino, where, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe it gives you hope that Mourinho was just an aberration, but I, I'm certainly encouraged by the names being thrown around the legitimate press. I mean, Nogglesman, even if it's not going to happen, the fact that we were apparently so hot for him, like I think that speaks well of what we're targeting. And today, very shortly after it came out that Nogglesman was going to Bayern, I mean, it sure reads to me like press. the press was briefed on some level about Ten Hag. Um, there was an article in the Telegraph. There was an article in the Mail. It sure looks like somebody's talking about that. And again, I don't know the. I'm not sure where I fall on the individual merits of any of these particular managers. I, I think that can be debated. But I am encouraged by the direction it seems like Spurs are walking in. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about like the managers as a group being sort of where we're at. Um, you know. We're in a we're in a completely different spot than where we were when we when we made the decision to hire Pochettino, um, it, it, like because of Pochettino, he progressed us to now this different echelon, and you know we aren't the the moneyed teams like a city like a Chelsea, like a Bayern Munich who are going to attract like the top top level, um, and so when you're looking at the, sort of the next tier of guys. There's risk inherent with all of those guys. Um, and, and I think Nogglesman is probably the one you look at and you go, this seems to be the best of this tier. And, and maybe he's the one who has sort of uh, the least amount of risk. Um, but but everybody else, I mean, every, you know, all the managers that we're linked with, everyone's going to have their own particular favorite, you know, whether that is, you know, Ben likes... Uh, Rangnick or, or or Graham Potter and you like I don't know Ten Hag I I, I think they're all Hog Hog Brian for likes life, Roberto Martinez yeah I love Roberto Martinez <laughs> I hate midfield in, in general uh, or defending at all uh, I, I don't know like Just bring I, back Chadley put make him a fullback what the fuck right yep maybe we could bring back Musa Dembele I don't know um, no I, I think. So, so you're looking at a group that is that is largely interchangeable, and you're arguing over small points, like with Ten Hag. Like, is it can he do this outside of the IX system? Like, that's a good question. Or the um, Netherlands, but, like, yeah, and, and and you know, with Rangnick, like, is he willing to like start over at 62? And like, he hasn't really won all that much stuff. Like, you know, so perfect and then, for Spurs. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, you know, what's your contingency plan for when he decides to retire? Like, is he willing to step up 
to sporting director, and then three years, two or three years down the road, you're looking at hiring another new manager. Um, you know, with with Potter, what does he do with more resources and more pressure and more everything? Like like they none of these guys are are like a magic solution for Spurs, um, but they're all better than Jose Mourinho. So. I, I, I like you said they they are young they are progressive Ragnick's not young not young but progressive um, I, I'm interested in all these guys I'm not interested in Scott Parker not interested in Brendan Rodgers but even Brendan Rodgers are probably a decent hire I, I, not that he's going to leave Leicester because they have money and they might be better than us but you know like I, I'm interested in most of these names. You know, I just can't like can't get over the fact that to me, the manager is only a piece of it, and like we just have to be doing more. You know, we've talked about this before, like how reactive we've been with our overall structure of a club. You know, from Frank Arneson who left for Chelsea, and then Damian Connolly who were our directors of football, to jettisoning all of that because Harry Redknapp didn't want to work with anybody except for his like Rolodex to, you know, AVB, we brought in Franco Baldini for a hot minute to like give him a system to work with and then blew that up as soon as AVB was gone. And then Pochettino, we had Paul Mitchell, but he was a scummy grifter. So like, okay, that blew up. And then, you know, now back to Jose Mourinho having more control than, you know, he should be given given his track record and you know along the way we have done some good things we know we have worked with analytics firms before we have a reasonably good scouting uh department run by steve hitchin like our big targets and, and dombele and Loselso have been broadly like good signings it's just we still seem to be very limited by Daniel Levy being way too involved in football operations and Daniel Levy struggling for control with his manager and, you know, struggling. How much is he going to give up? How much is he going to maintain? You know, like he wouldn't let Jose Mourinho sell Deli Alley and Danny Dombele when he wanted to. And it's like, I think that's a good thing, but it's like at some point it's, we shouldn't be having these fights between the owner and the manager over how this team is run. Like we just need to build the kinds of infrastructure that, really streamline this process so that if the manager wants to like have a say or help out with negotiations, that's fine. But there is something that's instituted from the top down throughout the club, from the Academy to recruitment, to style of play, whatever that, you know, we as a club are not just dependent on the whims of a madman. And, you know, again, I'm so, I am very excited about like most of the names we're hearing because they all have a lot to recommend about them, given what they've done. But I just don't want to be back here in three years when that project ends and being like, okay, how do we how do we band-aid over this? I, I like, we talk, just need some long-termism. I want to talk about Levy in a second, um, but I do want to echo something you said, Ben, which is I think what's exciting to me about these guys, and this will echo something also that Wendy said on The Extra Inch this week, which was, I think there is something about the way the last year and a half, two years have gone about like sort of refining our club identity. And that's what I think I find so exciting about the majority of these names is like, whether it's Graham Potter or Ten Hag or Ragnick 
you know, they all feel like the kind of people who are going to play, you know, kind of what Ryan Mason was talking about, that football that is like Tottenham Hotspur football. And I know if you're not a Spurs fan, you'll find ways to make fun of that. But this sort of like forward-looking, progressive, attacking football. And a lot of clubs say that. But I think, you know, we talked about it a few weeks ago, like Spurs are a club of romantics. That's what I want to see. I want to see someone who's going to, not necessarily against like Pep Guardiola's city, but against a lot of teams, like, take it to them, like, you know, try to ins- try to sort of impose ourselves on the match and give me something to really enjoy on a Saturday or a Sunday or, a, I guess, a Monday or a Wednesday, the way the Premier League works now. But, you know, and all those names give me hope for that. And on top of that, they all feel like people who are willing to work in a um, in that kind of system you were talking about. But, I mean, say what you want about a guy like Ten Hag, who... You know, there's certainly valid criticism and wor- and skepticism of a guy coming out of the Netherlands, but if nothing else, you know that guy's accustomed to working within a hierarchy. And in his case, in particular, working with—I mean, he came in when Ajax were an absolute mess and really helped sort it out. So, you know, there's a lot to recommend about all these guys, but you know, a lot of this comes down to Daniel Levy, and I find, frankly, I found a bit of interesting sort of schizophrenia among the Spurs fan base this week. And everyone seems mad at Daniel Levy, but everyone seems mad at Daniel Levy for entirely different reasons. On the one hand, there's a, there's people who are mad at Daniel Levy for betraying the soul of our club, trying to get the Super League, and he needs to go for that reason. On the other hand, we have the more traditional Enoch out Levy's opposers who are mad that we are not spending our money better or, you know, reinforcing the team, backing the manager. It's a very sort of like, he's getting it from both sides, and... The ESL, the anti-ESL stuff feels at least newer and more genuine on a certain level to me than the, you know, like, I feel like a lot of the post-final anger is coming from just, like, a frustration that we're not better place. And I don't know how seriously I take that in terms of being mad at Daniel Levy. Like, I think we know where he's sort of, where his flaws lay. But, you know, I, I think that the the... the I have a little bit more time, at least from a just ideologically consistent viewpoint with, for the ESL stuff. I, Brian, you are a Leviologist, I feel like, on this podcast. Where, where do you feel like Levy stands with Spurs fans these days? Well, I mean, I think broadly he does not stand in great stead with most of them. And I think probably the larger percentage that are angry with him are angry about the Super League thing. Which again, really, I would say I would I would flip that percentage, but really, I, I well maybe it's I'm just a pro- I'm with Brian. Really, okay, maybe maybe that's much my Twitter feed that I just feel I see like a lot of people angry that Spurs aren't winning more than that, and maybe it's just because it's just after the final, but yeah, no, I think the Super League thing is really pissed off a lot of people, and and again, not me, but I don't really not that bothered by it, whatever, um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, he's in a damned if he does, damned if he doesn't situation. But now he has the opportunity to win some people back on side by making a good hire and making it quickly. Um, you know, I think, look, he would have won round a ton of people by paying 30 million pounds or euros or whatever it is to, to Red Bull for, for Nogglesman. That, uh, I'm, I'm sure lots of people would have been very excited by that. Uh, and now that's not an option, so what he has to do is 
figure out what the next best name on that list is. And I mean, we've all talked like just now that all those names sound fine, but let's get it done. So let's do it. And like Ben said, let's get some structures in place. You know, let's announce, you know, Ten Hag with Rangnick or somebody else as director of recruitment and director of or, or director of football. Let's let's announce, you know, uh, you know that we're that we're doing things to revamp. Uh, our behind-the-scenes operation. Um, and I, I think this is a very crucial summer for Daniel Levy. Um, you know, not only is it crucial because you're getting a new manager, you've got players that are kind of nearing the end of their peaks um, that you have to decide what to deal with, but, like, you now have a large majority of your fan base that is not pleased with your particular ownership. And look, he's dealt with people not being pleased with him over the course of his year. I mean, we had all the Enoch out stuff, but I feel like that was just like a vocal minority of people. I feel like now he's getting to like at least a plurality of Spurs fans that are not happy with the way he's managed the club in some form or another. And so to get those people back on side, you have to do stuff. And I don't know that he cares about that or that he will do it because of those reasons. But, like, that, that's what needs to happen. And, and, and once that stuff does happen, people will get back into the fold. I think, you know, in terms of where fans are with Levy and what Levy needs to do, you know, we've had those Enoch apps for fuck's sake, spend some money, Levy fans for as long as I've been around. Um, you know, they always exist. And what it comes down to is like, they want us to be better. Um, and then this new thing with the super league, I think has alienated a whole different segment of the fan base who feels like Daniel Levy is treating their proud footballing institution very cynically and coupled with us being very bad on the pitch. It just feels like he cares more about making money than, giving us a football team that we can love to watch and the way we want to watch it. And, you know, I think he does take some of that criticism on board. Like he has said, he was not prepared for the fan reaction. Like we've, we've seen reporting um, on how he reacted to that backlash. And I think the reality is, is the best way to get the fans on board and the best way from a business standpoint to make money off of Tottenham Hotspur is to make us good again. And, you know, I don't know how jazzed fans will be about a, a director of football hire. Um, I don't know how jazzed fans will be about a particular manager hire. But he, I think, knows that he needs to get those things right and, you know, keep Harry Kane and go into next season with some exciting new signings as much as you can manage in a, you know, a, a tough financial summer after COVID with a manager that gets people at the very least believing in the possibility of what Spurs might be. I mean, you know, I think the transfer window summer is just like one of the best times to be a football fan because it's like it's in that moment when no games are happening that you can believe in anything. And we need to give the fans back that belief that coming into this season, we are going to be the Tottenham Hotspur that we have loved and gotten to love under Pochettino so recently. And 
if we can hit the ground running next season, you know, a lot gets forgiven. If we get good again, that kind but, of erases all else. I think that's the thing, though. I think Levy needs to, like, he needs to really resist. And I think that's what really fucked him with Mourinho was he hired someone that I think was meant to be a splash. It was meant to be a splash with fans. It was meant to be a splash with the locker room. And he needs to hire someone that he thinks is going to get it right. And he needs to be prepared to back that guy for a little bit. Because I think that's the interesting thing about a guy like Graham Potter. He could be the right hire. I know you're, you're higher on him than us, Ben, or than I am, at least. Um, although I think he would be a perfectly acceptable hire. But that's the kind of guy who, like, I'm not sure he blows Harry Kane away. I'm not sure he blows fans away. I mean... His team is 16th in the Premier League right now. I don't think that's illustrative of his talents as a manager, but it's what it is. And, you know, I think you've got to be confident that, you know, the way, like you said, Ben, the way you fix this is you get Tottenham playing well and winning games again. And I think there is an element in not just winning games, but playing with a style, playing with a flair, playing with a flourish. And... I think you got to be prepared to like just you got to you got to stick with that guy and you got to give him a little bit of time to sort of get it together because I think if you do hire a Graham Potter, it's going to take a while for a guy like a Harry Kane to buy in, you know, for the fan base to buy in, and you've got to like give them the time to sort of grow into the role and give them the support. And I don't just mean in the transfer market, but building that kind of infrastructure with a Ragnick or whoever that gives them the sort of not just them but the club sort of foundation to build on that success where we're not just randomly grasping at deals whenever they pop up so I don't know it's going to be a process I'm I'm just you know it's funny I'm just you know I was reading a little bit about managers today and I was very out on Graham Potter and just reading about him like I was I found myself coming around to it as I was reading it and you know I think there's something very exciting about getting someone in who off this list that we're seeing, especially after, you know, 18 months of Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that after the Jose Mourinho hire, it's going to be hard to give them another manager who immediately has that buy-in. Because the reality is, is there's just nobody really in world football who has that immediate clout. Um, And... You know, it's just you got to make a considered decision and trust that, you know, when you've interviewed them, that they demonstrate an ability to do that sort of thing. And I think most of these guys have experience doing that, you know. Um, Potter, obviously, less than others, has not really maybe worked with, like, bigger egos. But, you know, Pochettino, when he came to Spurs, didn't really either. And, you know, the point when we had you know, the Kabul cabal and it was made very clear to these players that Pochettino was the manager and that was that and backed him through that kind of you know, dressing room crisis is I think the moment when the team really started taking off and the P players really started accepting that like, all right, well, this is the manager and we got to make it work. And, you know, we just need to prepare, be prepared to do that and not not let that fall apart just because Harry Kane's unhappy, you know? And I think there's definitely a concern that as you go through managers like Pochettino and now Jose Mourinho and, you know, malcontents in the squad played a big part of those, those sacking decisions. Um, 
it's easy for players to think like I'm going to be here when you're gone. So I don't have to listen to you. And you know, that's a really tough moment. And I mean, everybody has to be behind getting that right. So Brian, I'll start with you. How are you feeling about the rest of the season? Like, I mean, we still have an outside, not, I think it's not great, but it's not completely unrealistic chance at the champions league. We don't have, I think Leicester's the only, like, really good team we play. I mean, we've got a real sort of, real, real easy, easy set of teams to play until we get to Leicester on the last week of the season. How are you feeling about our chances for the rest of the year? I, I literally do not care. Um, and, I, and I mean that, like, I don't mean that in a negative way or in a like like fuck this team I'm over it like what I mean is I don't think it makes that much of a difference for us next season. Like yes, finishing top 4 is good from a prestige perspective, but I think what would be great for this team is, you know, kind of the thing that has happened to some of the other big teams in recent years where you have a season without European football and you consolidate and you focus on, you know, the league and the domestic competitions. And especially in a year where, you know, we've got the, the Euros over the summer. Um, you've got what we have the World Cup in the winter, like less matches for our team would be probably beneficial in the long run. Um, but in that regard, I don't care. Like, if you're asking me, do I want to finish fourth? Yeah, in the top four. Yes, absolutely want to finish in the top four. If I care about between finishing between fifth and seventh or eighth, no, don't care. I mean, realistically, like we have five matches to make up five points. You know, with three teams ahead of us, also trying to do the same thing. I think, given what Ryan Mason has showed so far, um, and yeah, you know, I think I don't want to read too I think much. It's pretty in unlikely. It. I don't think we should read too much into how Ryan Mason played against Manchester City, but we'll see this week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I think, I think from a revenue standpoint, getting top four is going to be important this summer, especially because we had the bad revenue season we just had. But Brian's right. Coming off this COVID season, which has been very, very tough physically for players, and going straight into the Euros, um, I don't think the World Cup is until next year. But the point remains is like people are going to be very tired and not having European competition has been a boon to other teams. And it could be for us. It could be wild to come out of this and go on like an actual title run just because we don't have 60 games a season. The problem is we'll probably wind up in the Europa conference thing. And then we'll be the first ever winners of that bullshit trophy. And everyone will be like, Oh, look, Spurs won another Mickey mouse cup. And it'll, but it'll mean we played 27 extra games over what we should have fucking played. Hey, and yeah, we ben actually fucking right. win something. Like. Yeah. And, and Ben is, of course, right. The World Cup is in 2022, not the winter of 2021. That would be stupid. Um, but, yeah, I, it's, it's just these guys are going to, like, players like Harry Kane um, that are involved at the Euros, like, he's going to have no rest. He will have literally zero legs left. Um uh, not that he has any legs right now, but, you know, uh, it's going to suck. Fortunately, Hung Min Sun isn't going to be at the Euros, so that's good. Yeah, he's just going to be at another team. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, watching him cry like that at the end of the match was very sad. 
especially because he probably should be crying after the match he had. But yeah, it's uh, I don't know that guy. I just maybe I think that's the saddest thing about that Cup final is like this team has deserved better, even if they maybe don't deserve better right now. Um, they have deserved better, and it's a shame they never got to sort of lift that trophy. It's just hard to look at Sun crying on the pitch at the end and think the players don't care. Like they do care, and. They want to be better. They wanted to win that game. And anybody who says otherwise is an asshole. Well, I know I'm blaming Jose Mourinho, so. Amen. Ryan, Ryan Mason is just a victim in, in the ongoing psychodrama of Jose Mourinho. Before we go, I want to ask Brian real quick about a quote of his from November 2019. <laughs> we were oh, God. searching for a manager to replace Pochettino. Did you really uh, write this down? No, I have the article right here in front oh, of me. Oh, I wrote this down. Oh, how convenient of me. Um, you said, and I quote, if nothing else, Ryan Mason is not Jose Mourinho. And that is a huge point in his favor. Um, you also said his non-Mourinho-ness is definitely a trait that Spurs should be looking for in a manager. Yeah. I, uh, I think that the current state of play bears those things out as having been true. I mean, you want to read? You are happier to have Ryan Mason than Jose Mourinho. No, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I mean, happiness is really a sliding scale, isn't it? Um. Said, you guys thought Sherwood was fun. Well, think how much fun the Ryan Mason era will be. If nothing else, it will be fun because it is not the Jose Mourinho era. Care to comment? <laughs> I mean, it is in fact not the Jose Mourinho era, and I think you already said earlier in the show that you enjoyed this Cup final much more than if Jose Mourinho. I'm not been... talking about me, Brian. I'm oh, talking, talking about how I feel. I mean, look, I I think that again, as we've discussed at the beginning of the podcast, it's important to be right on the internet, and I think <laughs> what you've just shown is that I was. In very, in even more ways than I could fathom, right on the internet. So uh, I, I feel good, pretty good. Well, I can't think of a better note to end it on than that. Uh, Brian, where can people find you being correct on the internet? Uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. And since everybody is making fun of me now, I'm not going to tell you how to spell it. Good luck. <laughs> ben, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ComradeUspurs. You can find our show's official podcast feed at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079. Uh, I think that's it for the week. So for Ben, for Brian, and of course for Brett Rainbow, I've been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs.